before we get started, I have to include the disclaimer. This episode is for education purposes only. These are not medical recommendations. Everything in this episode is my opinion. If this is a true medical emergency, please call 911 or go to an emergency room now. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to But What Will People Say? I'm your host, Disha Mystery Mazeppa. And we are on week four of women's wellness. And this is our episode dedicated to special needs and disabilities and moms and dads who may have children with special needs. And if you are a new parent or going to be a mom soon, because I know this is kind of one of those topics our community definitely doesn't talk about. I tried to do some research before recording this and it was really hard because there's almost nothing it was like crickets trying to find places to look and people to talk to in regards to this um so basically what is going to happen is I'm your guest for today so it's going to be a little bit of a one-sided conversation I'm a pediatric occupational therapist I work mainly with kids between zero and five years old a little bit older Um, But I have experience kind of across the lifespan, you know, from nursing homes and the geriatric population to subacute care and adults and all that good stuff. But mainly my bread and butter is early intervention and preschool age, so three to five. Um, I work with kids with disabilities and special needs, for example, Down syndrome, autism spectrum disorder, Prader-Willi, Phil and McDermott, developmental delays, you name it, I've probably worked with it. Um, So that's a little bit about me. Um, I'm just going to go through basically some questions that I did get from people along with areas that I think should be discussed, resources, and things like that. Um, So yeah, I'm going to start with defining special needs and disability because I know those two words get used interchangeably a lot. Um, Oxford Dictionary, special needs in the context of schools are requirements resulting from learning difficulties, physical disability, or emotional or behavioral difficulties. So usually special needs is primarily used in regards to school because it is a way to describe the accommodations needed for a child with a disability in a classroom, whether that be in a special ed classroom or a contained classroom of some variety, um, a completely different school, or in a um, integrated classroom, which is a word they use to describe kids put in a classroom with basically typical children, typically developing children, um, and sort of letting them learn on a standard academic curriculum and just providing the classroom adjustments that they might need, such as maybe more time to complete a task or an exam, um, larger font, maybe an aid in the classroom, a visual schedule, special chairs, maybe space for a wheelchair, things like that. And disability, according to the Oxford Dictionary, is a physical or mental condition that limits a person's movements, senses, or activities. So basically, they're very similar. Disability is just a more broader term being used. So it's not just within a school setting. Special needs is usually used in an education setting. 
right off the bat, I'm going to tell you, I don't have kids. I work with them. So that's where my background in this comes in. Um, I wanted to give more of a provider's perspective on all of this because our women's wellness has been a series of folks who work in the realms that they are discussing. It's not just opinions or personal experiences. It's it's more backed by the things that we work and deal with every single day. So the first thing I'm going to start with are resources because I know that's usually the first thing parents are looking for. And I'm going to tell you the best place for you to start is the CDC. And I know right now with the whole COVID situation, we're hearing a lot about the CDC, but what you don't know is how much of a resource they are for all sorts of disorders and diseases all across the spectrum. They have all of the research and all the science that you could possibly need, but they also have a lot of resources. If you go on the CDC's website and you can even just Google, you know, free resources by the CDC and it should pop up because they do provide um, either paperwork or resources, information, checklists, all the things you can need as a parent of a newborn or of a child with special needs. I'm going to link all of this in the description of the show so you can just hit those links. Um, But if you go on the CDC's website, they will have a developmental monitoring kit. So things for tools to track milestones. They have children's books. They have tips for when there's a developmental concern, what to look out for promoting developmental monitoring, engaging with families, tools to support screening, um, parental training resources, um, and all of this stuff can also be requested by the CDC and they will ship it to you for free. So you can request resources, they'll send you developmental charts, checklists, all kinds of just little books on like milestones your child should be reaching red flags to look out for who to call who to contact um and i'm a big proponent of the cdc i've requested resources from them too as a provider to then provide to the families that i work with so they're a really great resource they also have a milestone tracker app so definitely check that out as well and it's nice because the cdc is obviously research-based and the information they give you is not it's based on science. It's not based on, you know, word of mouth or things people might say or like, oh, this worked for me, um, which is all well and good. But when you're working with kids with special needs, knowing where your information is coming from is really important because there is a lot of misinformation out there. The next thing I'm going to tell you to look out for is the ARC or Camp Hill Communities. Both of them are organizations that help your child as they kind of go through the lifespan gain skills gain independence ability to move out help them find jobs because if you have a child with a disability more likely it's going to be across their lifespan it's something that they're going to deal with from birth throughout their life and that's going to impact the way they interact with the world around them The ARC is the world's largest community-based organization for people with intellectual and disability developmental disabilities they're awesome they're in all 50 states all you have to look up is the arc and if you go on their website you can find a chapter in your county Um, if you're in new jersey i know somerset county has one 
nearby. That's the closest one to me. They also provide things like early intervention services, um, vocational training, and all the stuff, just resources. Again, great place to start. And they're everywhere. So no matter where you're listening from, if you're in the United States, you can find an ARC chapter near you. And that's spelled A-R-C, the ARC. Um, another great place to look is finding the foundation for your disability. So if your child has something like cerebral palsy or autism or Phil and McDermott, there's an organization or a foundation for that disease um, to target research, to provide resources, to find support groups for parents and families. Um, they're a great place to look because then it's very niche to what you might be experiencing as a parent. Um, so for example, Autism Speaks is your organization for children on the spectrum. Same thing goes for all other diagnoses your child might encounter. Your next place to look are government resources. Um, if you have a child with special needs, if you are a person with disabilities, um, you can look up government resources for things like transportation. You can get a weekly stipend for being a caregiver. If you are losing working hours or if you are spending all of your time taking care of someone with a disability, you can get paid as a caregiver, even if it's your child or maybe a loved one. Um, it can still be some source of an income because I know that financially it can be quite a strain if you are taking care of someone who may not be able to be independent. Um, transportation is also provided by the government. So, for example, to get to doctor's appointments, to get to therapy sessions, to get to and from school, those can all be provided by the government. If you look up your Department of Disabilities in your state, that is where you're going to start. Usually you fill out some paperwork, probably a lot, but it will be provided because especially things like IEPs and um, related services like occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech language are federal mandates. So those have to be provided by every state according to the government. So you have the right to them and you should definitely take advantage of them. And the next thing I wanted to bring up before we get more into the nitty gritty of it was a little bit of hope. Because I know that for a lot of families, when you find out that you have a child with special needs, it can be a big adjustment and it can also be a lot to come to terms with because, you know, you have this idea of, you know, you're pregnant, you're going to have a baby and you have this idea of the life you're going to lead, right? Where you're going to take them, where they're going to go to school, who they're going to be friends with, the toys you're going to get them. And when you realize that maybe your child may have some developmental delays or may have a disability, all of that changes. And sometimes if you look super far into the future, it may not look the way you want it to or that idea that you had in your head is no longer there. And I want you to keep in mind that that's it's a different future, but it doesn't have to ne necessarily be negative. Um, last year, myself and some of my colleagues were invited to the United Nations for World Autism Day. And every year they have a theme. So last year's theme was a focus on communication and communication devices, because not 
all people with disabilities communicate the same way and kids on the spectrum often have some sort of a communication delay or difficulty. And at that, at World Autism Day, they had a whole panel of people who are on the spectrum, many of whom who are nonverbal, and they're all roughly my age. They're all kind of mid to late 20s. And all of them were minimally or almost completely nonverbal. Every single person on that panel had a master's degree or a PhD, and they all gave a collegiate level speech using their communication device, speeches that they wrote, that they came up with to express their thoughts and feelings on the topics they wanted to discuss. And they were able to share them with an entire room full of people using their communication devices. So maybe they didn't use their own voice, but they used a device that allowed them to have one. And that's incredible because one thing that when you think about children on the spectrum, if they're nonverbal, a lot of people think that they, they're they not going to go anywhere. They'll never be independent. They won't be, quote unquote, successful in the typical sense. And yet I stood there, well, sat there while they stood up there and every single one of them spoke. And it was such an inspiration and also a reminder that autism is not an intellectual disability. It's mostly a motor difficulty and a neurodiversity in the way that their mind and their body processes the environment around them and the way they communicate with the world. And so that was really inspiring. And so if you needed a little bit of hope, if that doesn't do it for you, I don't know what will. And you can actually watch those speeches on the United Nations website. I do think they were streaming it. It might still be up. It should be. It was only last year and this year's World Autism Day hasn't come yet. So we're moving on. Um, In terms of the South Asian community, there's a lot of stigma and shame associated with having someone in your life, whether that be your child or a relative with special needs, with even just a learning disability um, or developmental delay. Our culture is so terrible at talking about it they want to brush it under the rug they want to push it to the side and they don't they don't know how to come to terms with it because it always comes back to the same idea that this podcast highlights is what will people say if I had a child with special needs if my child is on the spectrum if my child has a disability and the bottom line is it's not your fault And there's nothing you could have done to prevent it. It wasn't, you know, your diet while you were pregnant. It wasn't because you sinned in the past and now God is punishing you. That somehow tends to be the leading reasoning that the families I work with and have seen in the past tend to file it under. Um, As a provider, I've definitely worked with South Asian families and Thinking that God did this to your child is like, it's kind of their reasoning. They think that if they go to temple and they pray enough, or if they do this puja, or if they see this Ayurvedic doctor, that they're going to quote unquote cure their child. That if they, I guess, repent for their sins, I sometimes really have a hard time even understanding it. And so there's that. 
um if you think god did this to your child um nope let's that let's just get that idea out of your head and get on with what can we do to give your child the best chance at success because that's really what we need to focus on another thing is south asian communities just pretending like their child doesn't exist and that's not okay um i think it's completely wrong to try to hide your child and act like they don't exist because then you're taking away all of their possibilities instead of focusing on what you can do and what can be done we're just trying to act like it doesn't exist so there's a lot of denial in the South Asian community and it's only going to take time away from your child if you're busy focusing on how you feel about it because as a provider as someone who's done early intervention as someone who works with such a young age group that is such a pivotal time to get help it's such an important time for development it's such an important time to take advantage of related services like ot pt and speech and the more time we spend brushing it under the rug being in denial the more time you're wasting and taking away from building the foundation to give your child the best chance at success so there's that um unfortunately when it comes to disabilities even you know a lot of the things we talk about on this podcast tend to relate to gen gen x which is like our parents generation but with this topic, it still seems to carry over to millennials, which is the saddest part. Um, there's a lot of, you know, young families that you'll see where they either don't really believe in disability, they think it's a phase, they think their child will grow out of it. And again, we're going back to that idea of we're taking time away. Ages zero to five is the most important time for development. I can't stress it enough um, because after that, progress is so much slower and so much harder to achieve. And I'll explain more of that later. But yeah, millennials seem to have a hard time with that too. And also a lot of not believing in therapy. And to that, I think you have to just give it a chance. And the sooner you give it a chance, the sooner you will see results. And I know therapy is hard to understand, Especially because for children, therapy looks like play. It doesn't look like weights and dumbbells and repetitive exercises. It looks like Play-Doh and crayons and obstacle courses and throwing a ball around or playing with Legos. And it's not pointless. A lot of times when it comes to therapy, you'll see your therapist come into your home and they're just playing with your child and a lot of parents will look at it as well why do they need this like I could just give my kid toys and they'll just play with it but their problem is your child probably isn't playing with it they're probably just poking at it or looking at it or really not sure what to do with it if they're able to engage with it at all in an appropriate age appropriate way Um, and that's where we come in to help your child learn how to play because that is how your child will develop and gain all of the skills that they need Um, So going back to the stigma, I'm trying not to be like all over the place here, guys, but I'm sorry if I am. Um, 
a lot of the stigma, it stops parents from being proactive about seeking and accepting help and related services. And the sooner you get help, the higher the chance of success is. And early intervention is going to be your first step into that. Early intervention is provided for babies zero to three, and it has to be made a priority because from zero to three and from three to five is when your child is going to gain all of the basic skills they need and the foundation they need to develop higher level skills. So if you think about it, like we are building a house, the foundation has to be laid first, right? Those are your zero to five age range. Five years old is what I mean. You need that foundation. You need, you know, really simple things like bringing things to midline. So using two hands to bring something to the middle of your body, you know, turning your head and looking when somebody says your name. If someone says, you know, your name, do you turn around and look at them? Do you acknowledge that your name was said? Are you able to roll are you able to crawl because those are skills that establish underlying abilities like bilateral control or understanding that you have two sides of your body that need to work together that allow your brain to understand that one side of your body can cross over to the other side of your body and that's not just your arms and legs but your eyes going from side to side Um, your head turning from side to side picking your head up to look at something, whether that be a sound you hear or a musical instrument being played in the environment. Those are all your basic, basic foundational skills. And then from there, you're going to build the framework of your house. Those are skills you gain later on after the age of five. Things like cutting, writing your name, reading, talking and socializing with your peers, you know, developing friendships, problem solving, creativity. But if you don't have a solid foundation, trying to build a framework on a broken foundation is really hard. And if you have a cracked foundation, trying to fix it later on is a lot harder because now your body's also trying to build that frame on the foundation, but your foundation is broken. So while you build the frame, you're also trying to fix the foundation. And it's really tough. And at that point, progress is so much slower. And instead, in early intervention, you'll see progress from week to week. Every week, you should be seeing little changes. And maybe you as a parent might not always notice immediately, but as a therapist, you very much do. And from three to five, it ranges from every few weeks, every month or two, you'll see progress. And then when you hit after five, you start seeing progress every six months, every 12 months. It starts slowing down significantly. And so that's why I'm stressing the importance of finding help early on. And the way you're going to do that is you're going to go to your doctor. But before you even do that, you're going to make an appointment with your doctor. And when you make that appointment with your doctor, you're going to say, I have some concerns that I want to address with my child's doctor. And write all those concerns down. Write down all the questions you have. There is no such thing as a silly question. If you're noticing that your child isn't meeting their developmental milestones, and as a new parent, I'm sure you already have that list. If your child isn't making eye contact, if they're not, you know, emotionally responding to you, do they smile? Do they laugh? Do they interact with you? 
or the environment around them? Do they seek the things that they like and dislike? And as a parent, again, you probably already know what your child likes and dislikes. So if you aren't seeing those things, write them all down, write down your concerns. And when you make your appointment, tell the, you know, whoever answers the phone, the receptionist, that you have you want some time to talk to your doctor about your concerns so that way they schedule that time into your appointment because otherwise your doctor most likely didn't allocate the extra 15 minutes in their schedule and now has to run to their next patient so if you give them some warning it makes sure that they allocate that time for you and you don't feel rest rushed at your appointment and when you get to your appointment make sure you bring that list of questions and ask them to your doctor you know, because they're also tracking all of those things, right? Your pediatrician is usually asking you, are they crawling? Are they rolling? Are they doing all these things? And they're marking it down. And at that point, your pediatrician should be then pointing you in the direction of things like early intervention and where to find a provider. And most likely early intervention will be provided in your home. So you don't have to go anywhere. The providers will come to you and those providers will be the OTs, the occupational therapists, the PTs, physical therapists, and the speech therapists or speech language pathologists is their long form name. The PTs will work on things like gross motor skills, log rolling, crawling, walking, things like that. The OTs will work on things like play skills, eye contact, fine motor skills, things like can they press the buttons on the toy? Are they lifting their head up and tracking as something moves across the room? They're much more smaller and subtle skills, but important nonetheless. If your child has sensory processing difficulties, the OT is your person for that. If your child is toe walking, are they running into the wall and banging their head into the wall as hard as they can? It happens and it's terrifying, but the OT is the person who can help you with that. Are they socially interacting with you? Are they babbling? Are they coloring? Are they able to engage and play with a toy for the appropriate amount of time? So depending on their age, they should be able to engage for one to two minutes to up to 15 minutes if they're a bit older. Um, The OT will work on those things. Bilateral coordination, so using two hands for things. Fine motor skills are things like picking up blocks and stacking them, building designs, um, opening their toys, self-care skills. So if your child is reaching around age three, things like putting your socks on, helping get dressed. Is your child potty trained? Um, Are they able to manipulate things like fasteners, buttons, zippers, opening up their lunchbox when they get to their daycare, their preschool? All of those things are OT skills and then speech language pathology will work on communication skills and language but also cognitive skills so not only is speech working on is your child speaking are they talking if they are talking are they able to produce age-appropriate sounds so that when they talk you understand what they're saying are they articulating so that's a word you'll hear a lot speech works on artic right Can they say the words they're trying to say and make the appropriate sounds? But speech will also work on things like cognitive skills. And are they able to decipher up and down orienting words or 
WH questions. So what questions? Why questions? You know, where is the frog? Why did the frog run away? If you're reading a story, can they answer simple questions about what's happening in the story? Are they able to attend? All of those things speech can work on. Also social skills. Are they able to share a toy with their peers? Are they able to engage in a turn-taking game? Are they able to, you know, figure problem-solve with their peers? If someone maybe isn't ready to share or maybe they want to borrow a crayon from a friend, are they able to use the right social pragmatic skills to navigate those encounters? Speech can help work on those as well. Um, and the th- reason all of that is important is because those are all those little tiny skills that help make up the foundation of your child's development. And there is a certain amount of flexibility. Obviously, development is a range. You know, you can, there's usually a three to six month range for most skills to develop. And most kids fall into that range. But if they're falling outside of that three to six month window, a lot of times your pediatrician will keep an eye on it. And if it becomes a larger issue, they will refer you out to us. So the OTPT and speech will likely come to your house. And they do things like family training and also direct, you know, hands-on therapy with your child. But also what can you as a parent do? You know, how are you going to help them engage in tummy time or engage in a fine motor activity using the things you have in your home? You know, sometimes they'll bring their own stuff, but a lot of times they'll try to use the things you already have so that when they're not there, you can do it yourself because the most important thing, and it makes the biggest difference, is carryover. When your therapist gives you homework, you have to do it. You have to do it every day with your child or as frequently as they requested that you do it because that is where you're going to see the most progress. And a lot of times it's really simple. It's, you know, let your child sit crisscross unsupported on the floor to play and things like that. So it's really easy, but it almost almost feels not aggressive enough to a lot of families. And so it's really important to do it because it makes the biggest difference. And a lot of times we're trying to make things that are easy so that you do do it. So there's that. Um, another thing that because of the stigma that South Asians have with disabilities is they wait too long to get services. So if you past the age of three it's too late for early intervention services at that point you're transitioning to preschool services Um, those services are usually provided in school depending on your state or can be provided at an outpatient clinic and once you know our parents they get around to therapy and they get past writing it off as a waste of time because for lack of a better phrase, that is what they do. They go back to, oh, they'll grow out of it. This is silly. Why are they coloring their kids? Of course, they don't like coloring. Of course, they don't like sharing their toys. Of course, they cry. And yes, but when they fall out of the norm, when they fall out of the average, like, are they crying all the time? Are they always playing with the same toy are they always talking about the same thing they can't they can't engage with you about something else they can only talk about trains right and how trains work and where trains go and everything is a metaphor about trains 
but we can't switch to something else or can they change activities can they transition from you know tummy time to now it's dinner time to now it's bedtime or are we having a full-blown meltdown are we having a screaming fit because transitions are big changes and your baby maybe doesn't know how to cope with those changes those are usually red flags especially if they're happening all the time or your child is having a very extreme averse reaction and then what happens is because of this because maybe your child is crying a lot or maybe your child can't handle loud noises or different people or busy environments parents start social distancing and not in the coronavirus kind of way in avoiding social situations altogether they stop bringing their child to play dates they stop going to birthday parties they are worried about what others will say about the judgment in our community about the aunties whispering about their child well why is your kid like this why are they so weird right they use the wrong words they use insensitive language or in our culture a lot of times people will just come up to you and say like what did you do to your kid why are they like this and as a parent that's it's hard to hear of course it's rude it's disrespectful it's insensitive and the best thing you can do to still engage in those social situations including going to school we have families that will just not send their child to school and say they're not ready instead of preparing their child to go to school and getting again the resources to do those things um talking to their school visiting the school sending or if you have a birthday party maybe you need those noise canceling headphones maybe your child needs their preferred toy or their sensory bin with them or maybe a weighted blanket or asking the family of the house you're visiting is there a quiet space for my child to go if they become overstimulated asking for what you need and coming prepared with what you need or what your child needs is the best way to still do the things that you need to do and going to those birthday parties and going to those dinners those family dinners or making sure your child can get on the school bus is providing those accommodations and more and more especially in the united states it's becoming easier to do um and people are much more willing to be accommodating but you have to make sure that you're talking about those needs and what your child might need and advocating for them as a parent you are your your child's first form of advocacy you are their biggest cheerleader and you are their voice if they don't have one because they're too young to speak up for themselves even if your child is able to speak they're too young to know what they need all the time and you have to be the person to make sure that those needs are being met and those accommodations are being provided um so there's that we went through how to talk about your doctor um and when it comes to therapy from an ot perspective like i said it's a play-based approach um your child isn't the only one who needs therapy and a lot of times we have to remember as parents well I'm not a parent but you as a parent have to remember that you might also need support right you can seek out those support groups and that goes back to finding 
parent support groups for children with disabilities, Facebook groups for parents of children with disabilities, and finding that foundation of the dis- of the disease because those foundations are usually the best place to look for support groups and they will have family support groups so you could meet and talk to other parents who are going through the same things as you are because taking care of yourself is just as important as taking care of your child. Um, they have also mental health counseling because ad- making all these just adjustments can be really hard and they can take a toll on your mental health and checking in with yourself Making sure that you're in a good headspace is important. And I noticed that a lot of times our parents of children's, children with special needs have a hard time remembering to take care of their own mental health because they spend so much time taking care of their child's needs. And sometimes their own needs might get put on the back burner. So making sure, whether that be once a day, once a week, or once a month, checking in with yourself, making sure you're getting the help you need, doing things for yourself, going out with, you know, your other adult friends, going out for a girl's night, going to happy hour, and making sure to do those things because how can you take care of someone else if you're not taking care of yourself? It sounds very cliche, but it is super important to remember. Um, in terms of early intervention, all of these services that I'm talking about, they are a federal requirement. And if your child is in school, it is a requirement by the Department of Ed that those services are provided. And school-based services are free. They are paid for by the government. And so you should definitely take advantage of them. I should probably have started with that. You don't have to pay for them. Early intervention, depending on your state, is often a sliding scale. So based on your family's income and ability to pay, those fees are then adjusted. So if you are a lower income family, they can be completely free. If you make a median income, you might be paying anywhere from $15 to $30 a session um, and so on. So, And in some states, it is free. Um, in New Jersey... I think it's free. I would have to double check on that. But again, check with your state's disability department and they can let you know how that works. But if you are getting school-based services, those are paid for by the government and they are provided usually in school by therapists that are hired by the school. So that therapist is going to go to your child's classroom and either treat in the classroom or pull them out for a little while and provide services in the OT room or the therapy room in that school. Um, And once you transition into a school, you'll hear words like IEP. An IEP is an individualized education plan, which is essentially a plan for how your child is going to learn in the school based on their needs and your IEP team should include a case manager an OT a PT a speech therapist a special ed teacher depending on the case a ABA therapist again depending on if the district provides ABA usually that is not a school-based service that might be a home-based service you would have to look into Um, and they are all people that you can contact with questions and concerns 
and they are going to be the ones to advocate for your child. If your therapists are in charge of recommending services. So if your OT comes to you and your child is receiving therapy one times a week for 30 minutes and they say, you know, I think we should increase that to twice a week. Take it into consideration. A lot of times we do give parents the decision ultimately if they choose to deny an increase in services. But more often than not, we are trained to determine how much therapy a child might need. And it's not coming from a place where we're going to gain anything from it. It's not like I'm getting paid to request more services for your child. I don't have some third party payer saying, oh, request more so that you can get paid more. That's not how it works. <coughs> um, so there's no like selfish intent that tends to come up a lot. The parents start to feel like we're trying to sell them a product or a service by requesting an increase. That's not true. We're requesting an increase because we think that your child would benefit from more therapy and isn't progressing at the rate we would like to see them at, at their current mandate, which might be one times 30. So once a week for 30 minutes. Um, so for requesting that, but then you as a parent also have to fight for it. At those IEP meetings, do not quietly sit there and just allow whoever's running that meeting deny your child services. Come prepared with all of the reasons that your child might need services. And maybe you need to talk to your therapist about it. Not A lot of times your OTPT speech can't be at those IEP meetings. So ask them for the report ahead of time, their annual report. Ask them for their new goals and ask maybe why are you requesting this increase or why do you think this child still needs therapy so that you as a parent can advocate for your child during that meeting. It's so important to really stand up and fight for those services because unfortunately, because these are government-funded services, the school district, when they need to make cuts and when they need to save money, would, one of those areas that they will try to cut corners on is therapy because it is expensive and it does you know cost money for your child to receive services even though you're not paying for it the government is and so sometimes you will find that they are quick to discharge or quick to dismiss an increase now that doesn't mean a discharge is always invalid more very often you will find parents who are very hesitant on the other end of the spectrum to discharge their child from therapy. If the therapist is requesting a discharge, most likely it means your child is at a really good place and they're comfortable with the progress that's been made and they're not worried about regression, right? They're not worried that if you stop, you won't, you'll lose those skills. And that's the fear a lot of parents have. You know, you started with therapy, your child wasn't meeting all these developmental goals and now all of a sudden in the past year or two you have a brand new kid you have a child who can sit at a table and color and play with other friends and take turns during a game you know they're making eye contact they're talking they're walking around the school by themselves and the fear is if you take away services all of that will go away that they'll go back to not being able to think to 
where they were at before they started therapy. And if your therapist is requesting a discharge, most likely it's because they know and have the confidence in that decision. I understand the fear if someone in an IEP meeting might nonchalantly decide that, oh, well, they don't really need therapy. Like, they can just cut during art class. You know, they're not really giving you reasons. But if the therapist themselves is making that recommendation to you, they are confident in that decision. And yes, there might be fear. And the best thing you can do is talk to your therapist about it. Tell them what your fears are. Ask them, you know, what can I keep doing at home? If we stop having OT, what can I do? And what will likely happen is they'll make you a home program or a list of activities you can do at home. And, you know, if those concerns do arise, if they get discharged, and maybe a year from now you're realizing your child is now regressing or the teacher notices, oh, you know, we might need OT again. It's not easy to get uh, services back, but it is possible. Those cases can be made. And you can always request services again if you do feel that, you know, your child is regressing. So keep that in mind. It's a discharge is something that's the goal, right? You want your child to meet all their goals, hit all those milestones and then carry on. And very frequently it does happen. If you have, especially a child with things like minor developmental delays they the potential that was there those therapists worked tirelessly to achieve and eventually your child will be able to carry on through school and through life without us you know we're not quick to discharge if anything we're more quick to increase services because we think the we do usually believe the more therapy the faster the progress Um, And that's not always the case, but, you know, we want to increase services more often than we want to take them away. So if we are confident in that decision, definitely hear out your therapist before jumping into that fear-based wagon. And on the other side of the spectrum, you have the parents who want discharge immediately. You want progress right away, right? And when they're younger, you might see progress very quickly, often you know, within weeks. But as your child gets older, that progress becomes slower. And depending on your child's diagnosis, therapy might be something they're involved in for most of their life into adulthood. And if your therapist isn't ready to discharge, listen to them. We we don't want to see your child get discharged and then have to fight to get services back. Okay, they might be okay now, but if we're worried about them regressing, that's why we're keeping those services. That's why we're not discharging them, because we're worried that one month from now, six months from now, we're going to get a call from the teachers, from the doctors, from the school saying this child isn't keeping up in a classroom. This child isn't engaging at an age appropriate level. They're struggling because then we have to go back through the process of getting an IEP established. So 
even though sometimes therapy is hard to understand, especially a play-based approach where it looks like we're just doing silly projects with the child, we're singing songs, we're playing games, we're doing all these things. Those are the things your child should be able to do. Those are the skills that we are working on. But also those are tools for therapists, board games, crayons, you know, construction paper, scissors, obstacle courses, storybooks. Those are the tools we use to work on the underlying skills. So the functional goals will always be skills-based, right? Your child's goal will say things like they need to be able to do, you know, engage in a turn-taking game for three turns without therapist intervention 80% of the time. That's what the goal will say. But the skills that are being worked on are things like impulse control, body awareness, fine motor skills, visual perceptual skills. Can your child isolate their finger and spin that spinner? Can they use their pointer finger to spin the spinner in the game? Are they able to look at a board with lots of colors and pictures and curvy lines and move their game board pieces on the appropriate spaces? Because those require not only fine motor skills, but body awareness and visual motor skills and visual perceptual skills. Are they just moving the pieces anywhere on the board or are they following the path? Are they able to count one, two, three? If they rolled the dice, do they have pattern recognition skills where they can look at the pattern on the dice and determine what the number is? All of those are the skills we're working on. So even though as a parent or as someone who's not a therapist, you might just see us playing a board game. We're working on so much more than that. And it may feel like a board game is not an aggressive enough approach, but it's the best approach. And it's the approach that we know works. And it's the most child-directed and play-based and age-appropriate approach we have. And a lot of times, all of these approaches, all of these methods of practice are established or backed by frameworks like the floor time model or research done by science showing that, you know, children engaging in age-appropriate activities works on these skills. Children that are engaged or, what is it, exposed to play groups are establishing social skills and social pragmatic skills. Um, And that the best way to make progress in larger functional skills is by working directly on those functional skills. If you want your child to be able to button their own buttons, the best way to do that is to make them do the buttons on their jacket every morning, to put their own socks on in the morning. Because by working on those functional skills, you're also working on the underlying skills like bilateral control, like fine motor control, like body awareness. But those minute skills are meant to be broken down by the therapists you are working with. You are not expected to see those skills either lagging or progressing. That's where we come in. That's what we're trained to do. So keep that in mind. What else? I feel like I'm ranting. It's hard when I'm the only person talking. Um, And another question that did come up is how do you provide the language to your family members to talk about your child's disability and the best thing I can say to that is education Um, in the world of disability we use what is called person first language so 
when you talk about a child with special needs, we will use the person's name. So for example, their name is Michael, has autism. Or, and then instead of saying, oh, he's autistic. I know in the autistic community, they prefer as a community to be referred to as autistics, but from, so we do respect that if that's what they want, but mostly it's a person first approach. So as you've heard me talk about people with special needs, I always use the name or the noun, the person, the girl, you know, Sarah, Michael, whatever. It's their name before their disability. So that's one thing we always stress is that they are a person before their disability. They're not the kid with CP. They're Sarah who has cerebral palsy or things like that. You never put the disability first. It is not their defining factor. They are people before they are their disability. So that's one approach we always use. You'll often hear it in the realm of special needs. Um, and the other thing is to educate your family. You know, I think there's a lot of fear in our community of like interacting with people we don't understand. So if you see a child who maybe is nonverbal or is, you know, demonstrating sensory behaviors like flapping their hands or spinning in circles, if you're not exposed to that child, you don't know how to interact with them. And so the best thing as a parent that you can do is making sure your child is interacting with the rest of the family, with aunts and uncles and grandparents, but also educating all of those people that, you know, my son flaps his hands when he gets very excited, when he's overstimulated. And that means he needs a quiet space to help calm down his nervous system. Or educating them on what their child's diagnosis is. What is cerebral palsy? What is Down syndrome? How is this impacting your child and the way they live their lives you know because education is the best thing you can do to make sure that your child is seen to gain awareness in the community and make sure that your child's needs are being met but also that you don't have to feel like the people around your child are for whatever reason uncomfortable because the just like you know, back in the day before when we had slavery and things and you didn't even see people of color as real people and then you interact with them and then that's how we get rid of things like racism. This is the same concept. You have to make sure your child spends times with time with your family and that you shouldn't be ashamed of them and that you shouldn't feel like it's your fault um, and that they can engage just like everybody else or maybe in their own way, and that's okay too. It's okay that they're different, and it's okay that the way they communicate is different, or the way that they do things is different. Um, and another thing, this is probably the last thing we're going to cover, is the South Asian need to consult their Ayurvedic approaches. Listen, there's not a lot of research to back it up, so I'm not going to sit here and say that your first priority when you notice your child <coughs> is having difficulties that you should consult an Ayurvedic doctor. There's just no research for it. And listen, if you want to do that on the side, 
that's up to you but that doesn't mean that you should put aside things like early intervention and IEPs and school-based services to the side in hopes that you're going to try that first because like I've stressed so many times in this episode time is on your side if you act early enough you have to act early enough to give your child the best shot because if we're gonna spend you know from zero to five years old trying to go to an Ayurvedic doctor you're now losing time in therapy where there is proven research and backing that what we do works because if you're going to start when they're five or six it's not impossible but it is 10 times harder and it's 10 times slower and it's an uphill battle and you want the odds in your favor and the only way to do that is to act early um it's not to discredit Ayurvedic medicine, but when you work in the world that I work in, it's not your first line of defense. Your first step should always be talking to your doctor, going to your pediatrician, getting early intervention services, and doing carryover at home. And if you want to go on the side to talk to your Ayurvedic doctor, that is up to you. I can't condone it, but I also can't stop it. Our culture is like really hard. In Like they're just really into it. And in terms of special needs and disability, like turmeric is not going to cure cerebral palsy. So go to your doctor instead. And last thing I'm going to say, I'm only going to say it once so I don't rant about it. Vaccines don't cause autism. It's just that simple. And that, I think, is this episode. If you heard some clicking in the background, my husband is tapping away and because he's working from home and we have turned our living room into a co-working space. So I'm sorry about that if you heard some clicking and clacking in the back on his keyboard. I hope you found this episode informative. I hope it answered some questions. I hope it provided you with some resources. And I hope it provided you with some hope. And I will see you guys again next Monday on But What Will People Say? This was the last episode of our Women's Wellness Collection. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, If there are other topics that you would like to see covered, shoot me an email at bwwpspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram at dishesbydishes. And I will see you guys next Monday. Bye.